0: Or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today.
1: This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel.
0: That's right, Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy.
1: Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes.
0: And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50 not to mention amazing customer service.
1: So head over to greatlakeskidsapparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. Warning: Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
0: Welcome to Check the Locks Podcast. This is our very first episode. Olivia, I don't know about you, but I am super excited to be here and to be doing this. I've been looking forward to this. So how are you this morning before we jump into uh, our first case?
1: I'm super excited. You know, I've been you know, wanting to do a podcast for a long time, and this opportunity came. And I can't wait to get our first episode up and going.
0: I know. So uh, if you are tuning in, thank you so much for checking out the very first episode. I guess for, people who don't know us or what we do, we should take a minute and uh, and introduce ourselves. So my name is John Connor. You may know me from the John Versations podcast. That's how I met and got to be friends with my wonderful co-host. And again, thank you for being here. And uh, Olivia, if you want to tell the people some things about you.
1: Yeah, so I'm Olivia Cornu. I am just a nurse practitioner in New Orleans. And I met John on the John Versations podcast after I was on Lifetime's Married at First Sight in New Orleans. And we just kind of had this instant connection and got to talking. And here we are recording our very first and our own podcast, Check the Locks.
0: And again, just could not be happier to be here and be doing this. And, and for folks who may not know, uh, you know each episode, we're going to jump into a truly terrifying true crime case. Uh, that's a lot to say, truly terrifying true crime case. <laughs> but it's been so much fun to research and brainstorm. And we got the Instagram going. There's a Facebook group that you can join. So we'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. But uh, I figured we could go ahead and jump on in to this week's episode. So I picked the case for this first episode. Second episode is going to be Olivia's case, Uh, but we're going to kind of talk through it and, you know, just kind of share these details with you. And at the end, we'll talk about how spine chilling we think it is, or if we'd be able to sleep after. So again, thank you so much for being here and, and we can kind of jump right in. Does that sound good to you, Olivia?
1: That sounds like a plan. I will say it's very hard to pick your first case. I think that was the hardest part of this whole thing was deciding who is my first case that I'm going to talk about.
0: Yeah. I'm right there with you too. Cause uh, for people who may not know, we were kind of brainstorming. We thought it would be cool. Like let's do a case from the state that we're living in now or hometowns. Uh, I did a Nashville case for this one. I'm from Michigan originally. So it's not technically like a hometown case, but it is, you know, a local case for me. And I know one that we're, we're doing in the next episode is from new Orleans. So Really, really excited, and and uh, I, I did want to ask you before we started, like, did it seem a little bit more personal for you when you were researching your case? Because I know I was like, oh, I know where this is, I know where that is, I, I know this area, so did you find the same thing?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, my case takes place in Baton Rouge, actually. And it happened in my lifetime. So I was, you know, a teenager when this was happening. And so you remember watching it on the news and just hearing how this case came to fruition. And so, you know, it hits close to home, even though it's not anywhere related to me, but um, definitely interesting to do a case uh, from the home state of Louisiana.
0: Well, I am Really, really excited to hear about it. We'll go ahead and jump into this week's case. So this week, we are talking about Paul Dennis Reed, also known as the Nashville fast food killer. Our story takes place on Sunday, February 16th, 1997, uh, which does hold a very special connection to me because February 16th is actually my birthday. So when I started researching, I was like, oh, this is a terrible thing that happened. Uh, I, was, I would have been 12 years old. Uh, cause I was born in 85. So, but our story takes place in Donaldson, Tennessee. Now throughout this, we may call it Nashville because a lot of the cities that these things happened in are in the Nashville area. So a lot of, of people refer to it as Nashville, but it did happen in Donaldson. So it opens at a captain D's restaurant. I wanted to ask you, Olivia, do you guys have captain D's in new Orleans?
1: I don't think we have it in New Orleans, but I did grow up eating Captain D's. We had one in my hometown.
0: Okay. We did not have it in Michigan. We had like Long John Silver's. It's kind of the same equivalent. I don't eat uh, fast Fast food food fish. fish. I can't do it. (laughs) Yeah, something about it. But for the most part, I'm staying out of like drive-through fish places. So, Sunday morning, February 16th, 1997, an employee named Tara Anderson arrives for her morning shift at the Captain D's restaurant and she realizes that the doors are locked. There's no answer at the door. The manager should be there. They should be getting ready for the Sunday lunch rush. So, she takes a look. The chairs aren't down. You know, just things don't look right. So, she calls. Nobody answers. So, she then calls the police. She calls the police and then about 20 minutes later, an area manager shows up with a key. When they first walk in, I guess they couldn't tell that anything had really occurred. The restaurant looked really clean. The registers and the safe were closed. But they noticed that lunch prep was already gotten started. So Captain D's, they have coleslaw, stuff like that. You know, there's cabbage being cut, stuff out. It looks like the, the day was getting started. Um, have you ever worked in a restaurant? I, I did a lot of fast, not fast food, but I did a lot of restaurant jobs when I was a kid. Have you ever like done like yeah. the prep and all that?
1: The only thing I've ever done was work at a yogurt sandwich shop.
0: Okay. My very first job, I worked at a meat market. So they would like cut up cow legs and all this stuff. It would be my job to then go in and clean up like the meat saw afterward, which was disgusting. But that's a story for another time. (laughs) (laughs) So the area manager is there with the employee and they're walking through and they decide that they're going to check the back of the restaurant and they go into the walk-in cooler that is where they discovered two bodies. The detectives show up, and we're going to talk about him a lot throughout because he was the main detective on the case, but his name is Pat Pastiglione, which is, again, a lot of fun to say. So he's assigned to the case, and there's two bodies. It looks like they were both lying face down, and each victim was shot uh, several times. Now, what they also notice is that there are clear signs of overkill. So, you know, for having people in a cooler, on their knees, stuff like that. It definitely didn't look like they needed to be shot as many times as they, as they were. The victims were identified as 16-year-old Sarah Jackson and the restaurant manager, 28-year-old Steve Hampton. Steve was a father of three. He was happily married and doing well at his career in Captain D's. Sarah had been working at the restaurant for about eight months. Her mother, Gina Jackson, described Sarah as The typical teenager, she was going to school, working, and she had just bought a car that she had had for about two and a half weeks. So, you know, just a typical teenager was really excited, kind of, you know, dodging, running around all over town. Detective Pistiglione learns that there is $7,500 in small bills and coins missing from the restaurant. Detectives then suspect that the suspect got the victims in the cooler by convincing them that they were being robbed. Like, hey, you get in the cooler, I'm going to rob you. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to take off. The suspect, unfortunately, did take their lives. And then as he left, he locked the door behind him. That way, he could delay the discovery of the victims. So obviously, this takes place in Donaldson. I actually talked to a family member because my wife is from uh, the Nashville area. Her whole family has lived here the majority of their lives. And I asked a family member, um, shout out to Denise Sawyer, who is my uh, my wife's aunt, but I was like, what is it what was it like in the Nashville Donaldson area back in nineteen ninety seven because Nashville now is it have you been in Nashville?
1: I have not it's on my list of places to go all
0: right well you have a place to stay so come on up, but I guess there's like five hundred people moving to Nashville every day so it's just it's booming it's hustling bustling like downtown is always insane. And I guess back in '97, there was still that tourist element to like the Grand Old Opry and Broadway and stuff like that. But the the cities that kind of surrounded it were were typically pretty quiet. So this was a big, like this was a big thing for the community. So. Investigators asked employees, hey, did you guys notice anything out of the ordinary in the last couple of days? And staff from the night before said a man came in shortly after closing looking for a job. He said he was a cook and he asked for a job application. Employees of the restaurant looked through hundreds of police photographs, but they're not able to identify the man. They described him as being a big, tall, white male in his 30s. They also described him as very muscular. Police learned that Sarah Jackson left for work at 8.30 a.m. and arrived at Captain D's roughly 10 minutes later. Around 9, a woman on her way to church noticed some activity at the restaurant's front door. She recalled Steve Hampton, who again was the manager, holding the door with his foot and speaking to a male with a white piece of paper in his hand. Another witness said that they saw a man matching the description, leaving at roughly 9.20 in the morning. Police suspect the man who came in for the job application is the same man who committed the murders. At this point, the detective suspects that the person who committed the crime, in his own words, was a psychopath who was bent on killing his witnesses. I don't know about you when you've been researching your stories, but it's it's kind of hard as a normal person to try to put yourself in the mind of the person who's doing this. Like, if you're going to rob somebody, why not just rob them, right? Like, you don't have to commit Help the them. murder. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, you got what you needed. You can leave. But there's got to be a little bit of a psychopathic element if you're like, I could just leave, but I'm going to kill these people. So police get a new break in the case. A man was picking up cans on the side of the highway, and they found items that belonged to Steve Hampton. Steve's wife had told police that he had $600 in his wallet the day that he was killed, and it was money to pay the rent. Which I was also like, and I don't don't know about you, but I was like, $600 for rent? Like, I need to. <laughs> yeah.
1: When did that come about? That's what that's what rent cost in 1997? <laughs> right. I was
0: like, I need a time machine. I'd be balling out of control.
1: <laughs> and who has $600 cash just in their pockets?
0: Well, yeah. And I was thinking about that, too. Like, it's the 90s, and I know you're like me. Like, we grew up in that period. Now, I can't think about, like, I can't think of what have- it'd be like just to have that much cash. In my wallet. In you general,
1: know what I mean? like I barely have a 20 in my wallet.
0: We do a lot of shopping at Aldi's and it is hard sometimes to even be like, do I have a quarter for the shopping quarter. cart? <laughs> Let alone being like, oh, I've got $600 in my wallet. So there's a man, he's picking up cans on the side of the road and he actually finds Steve Hampton's wallet. And in a, a super rare twist, Because I guess this doesn't happen very often, but the guy finds the wallet. It's got his ID in it. So he calls the cops and is like, hey, I found this wallet. What they found was that the killer had stole the cash, but he tossed ID, credit cards. There was also a video rental car, which is another thing that kind of dates this story as well. Did you ever have like a Blockbuster card or anything like that?
1: Uh, Friday nights was the place to go to the video shop, get your, your, your VHS videos, your candy, your popcorn. Oh, yeah. Kids don't even, these days, don't even know what that means.
0: There's a really good documentary on Netflix that's called The Last Blockbuster.
1: Oh, yeah. It's in Oregon, I think.
0: Yeah. I worked at Blockbuster when I was a teenager. And so (laughs) I still have. I've saved it in my drawer. I have like my, I was like, because in like, uh, you know, 50 years, I doubt any of these are going to exist. So it's all laminated. I'm like holding on to it. So they get these items turned in and they're lucky enough that they're able to pull a partial print from the video rental card. When they run it, because again back then you know it was more of a regional database than like a national database, they run it in a regional database and they don't get any hits off of it. So police are now frustrated. You know it's a, a small town. Things like this don't occur very often. They're working long days. They're looking for leads. They're staying in contact with the victim's family. And and one thing that really stuck out to me, being a parent, was. You know, the detective was talking about, you know, I had to keep assuring these families that I was going to find the person that killed their their children and we didn't have any leads. So it's frustrating because you want to give them that assurance, but it's also like, I've got nothing to go on at this point, which I thought was very interesting.
1: That is interesting since we're in 1997 is that these fast food restaurants don't have surveillance cameras. You know, you, you go to a fast food restaurant nowadays and there's cameras everywhere.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing because, you know, in the research that I did, I I watched some ID discovery shows and some people had done some different YouTube videos on and stuff like that. They never mentioned the security cameras. And I got to thinking, I was like, what was the like, I wonder what the cost of that would have been, you know, because you can get like a ring stick up cam now for like 70 bucks. But I'm sure, you know, in 97, it was like a $2,000, you know, for like two cameras and everything had to be recorded to tape and everything like that. So I'm sure it was.
1: Probably didn't need it because you're in a small town outside of Nashville. It's expected to be saved. And who's going to hit a Captain D's?
0: Right. You kind of hit the nail on the head because that's what the cops and the assistant district attorney were saying was that, you know, this is not the type of crime that police really encountered on a regular basis. And based on the nature of the crime, Detective Pastiglione was very concerned that this killer would strike again. And unfortunately, five weeks later, that fear became a reality. It's now March 23rd of 1997, and a 911 call is received from McDonald's on Lebanon Road, and it's approximately two miles from where the incident at Captain D's took place. And on the call, which I've actually listened to the 911 call, and it's uh, kind of heartbreaking because you can hear this man, and he's just saying, please, and he's kind of grunting and moaning a little bit, and then he tells the 911 dispatcher, like, I don't speak English. That language barrier kind of prevents him from being like, This is what's going on. I you know what I mean? So it it kind of breaks your heart a little bit. So the police arrive. Uh, they show up at the McDonald's and they believe that there may be someone inside. So they proceed to break the glass on the front door. They enter and immediately the scene at McDonald's was extremely bloody and police found multiple victims. So they're going through. And what they notice is that one man is fortunately still breathing. They rushed him to the emergency room and why he's going to the emergency room. the, The police are still there investigating. And unfortunately they find three additional victims. There's 17 year old Andrea Brown, 23-year-old Robert Sewell, and 27-year-old Ronald Santiago. The gentleman who survived was named Jose Gonzalez. He was 30 years old, and he was actually the man who made the 911 call. So at this point, Gonzalez, he's the only witness. He's in critical condition. Police are worried that the killer may try to silence him. So they kept him in protective custody at the hospital. There was armed police officers around his door 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the killer made off with twenty three hundred dollars, but most of it was in coins. So,
1: so get it out to get it out to the banks and find out who's cashing in hundreds of dollars in coins.
0: But that's what I was wondering though. Was like we have Coinstar, right? So like you go dump all those coins in in ninety seven. You would have had to roll
1: roll your coins and drop them off at a bank.
0: Which, I don't know how you have the time to murder someone if you're rolling $2,300 in coins. Well, that's
1: what he's doing in his five weeks. Right. You know, he's, I was just thinking like, okay, it's been five weeks. Why did he wait five weeks before he struck again? He was too busy rolling all these coins.
0: My thumbs would hurt. We went to the bank to deposit money in, in Millie's bank account. And we had, you know, we emptied her piggy bank. And we're like, oh, they have a coin star. And they're like, we don't have one. You have to roll it. So they put us in an office. It was like 50 bucks in coins. And we were just like, God, this takes... Fucking forever. It was awful. <laughs> it was so awful. So, at this point, the entire city was in a panic. And as you can imagine, fast food workers were like, fuck this. I'm out. I'm not working fast food anymore. And really, you know, because of the age of the victims, parents were really hesitant about having their kids work in restaurants. Detective Pastiglione had discussed how hard it was to not become personally involved because of this. You know, you're looking at 16, 17 year old kids, and they haven't even really had the time in their lives to, you know, I know at 16, like I caused a little bit of trouble, but I hadn't really like had the opportunity to mess up my life in any way. Like I was still like a pretty innocent kid at 16. Um, I don't know, I don't know if you were a hellraiser or anything like that, but not at all. Right?
1: You can ask my mom though.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's, you know, these kids were, you know, just kids like probably looking at colleges and stuff like that. So for him, because of that, that level of innocence and, and their lives being taken at such a young age, I I think it was really hard for him. And now two weeks have passed since the McDonald's murder and they're in the same spot. There's just no leads. So police are really hoping that Jose Gonzalez may be able to provide some crucial info. Now I thought this was really cool because at the time. Jose wasn't able to speak. He could motion with his hands, but because of what happened to him at the time, he he couldn't really put it into words. So they would ask him, you know, how many people did this to you? Hold up the number of fingers and he would hold up one finger. And then they asked him, you know, was he a white guy? Was he a black guy? You know, hold up one finger for white, two fingers for black, et cetera. And he held up one finger and said it was, it was a, a white guy. As Jose started to recover, he was actually able to shed more light on the events of that evening. So at about eleven PM, the four employees are about to leave the store. They had finished, you know, closing duties, they're getting ready to leave. And the killer was actually waiting outside with a gun and forced the employees back into the building. He forced the manager to open the safe and then forced employees into the cooler. The suspect fired six times, shooting each victim in the head twice. Now, when it came to Jose, the suspect actually ran out of ammunition. And before he could reload to shoot Jose Gonzalez, Jose did something incredibly brave. He jumped up and tackled the suspect. At this point, the suspect then pulled a knife. And he stabbed Jose several times uh, in the neck and shoulder area. The suspect was like, hey, I've got him. I killed him. He's going to bleed out. He left him for dead. He leaves. But the cops run into an issue because during the Captain D's murders, they were provided a composite sketch. Somebody was like, I saw the guy. This is what he looks like. You know, the employees there talked about him coming in. They drew a composite sketch. But when Jose gives his description of the killer, it doesn't match that original composite sketch. But Detective Pastiglione believes in his guts that it is the same guy. So I don't know about the New Orleans area, but you know, at that time there was 500 fast food restaurants in the Nashville area, and it feels like now, you know, in 2022, there's like 500 fast food restaurants within like five miles of my house. So they put surveillance on as many of those restaurants as they could, hoping that the killer would strike while they were there. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. So it's now two months after the Captain D's and McDonald's murders, and police still only have that partial print and two different composite sketches. So again, stuck in a situation where we had no suspects. I wanted to ask you this. like, As a nurse, when somebody comes in, have you ever had a situation where they're, they're telling you what's going on, but like it's hard to diagnose? They're like, oh, these are my symptoms, this, this, and that, but like you can't figure out exactly what it is.
1: Oh, all the time. I mean, people will be like, I'm dizzy. Okay, well, dizziness can be one of a hundred things, you know? Um, so if you're not getting the true specifics of what's happening, it's hard to really pinpoint, you know, what that diagnosis is. But after listening here, I would say just by listening and hearing what's happening and what's similar in these cases is, one – they're in the, the the freezer, the refrigerator, the freezer. He's brought them into that same place. That, to me, is huge, okay? So you either have a copycat killer or you have the same killer, despite that the composite sketch didn't match the descriptions. One, Jose obviously had some sort of injury and suffered some trauma from it, and trauma is a big thing when it comes to, like, remembering events. Um, so I would just kind of rule that out as, like, mm, maybe he's just mistaking. But either have a copycat killer now, or you have the same serial killer on the loose that's about to hit another fast food restaurant.
0: Yeah, and I'm there with you too, because it it seems like money's missing. They're killing the employees. The thing that stuck out to me a lot with this is that, you know, the the first victims were shot. This time he's got a knife on him, like he's prepared, you know, in case he needs that. You know, just as a police officer, and again, you know, hearing Pastiglione and in those interviews kind of talk about like how hard it was, I'm sure that, you know, now something else has happened. There's still no leads. Now we've got Another three bodies and we're just like, we got to figure out what's going on. So now it is April 23rd, 1997, and it's around closing time at a Baskin Robbins in Clarksville, Tennessee. Now Clarksville is only about an hour outside of Nashville, so it's still pretty close in that same area. 16-year-old Michelle Mays and 21-year-old Angela Holmes are finishing their shifts. Michelle actually had dreams of being a marine biologist. Her family said that she talked nonstop, that, you know, she was just one of those those kids who just always had something to say. Angela was a new mother who was working her way through nursing school. You know, young kids working at a Baskin-Robbins, working on goals, making their life better. Now, around closing, Michelle had called her mom to arrange a ride home. Michelle's mom, Connie Black, recalls telling Michelle that her brother would be coming to pick her up. And this is such a mom thing because her mom said one thing that really stuck out to her was the fact that Michelle had requested potato soup for dinner. So like in that, like, that's the detail that she remembers from that, that final phone call was just like, she just really wanted potato soup. And I told her maybe being a parent, you remember like the weirdest things, you know, and so it's, I don't know, it's got to be a weird feeling to like have that be like so vivid in your head. So uh, just as Michelle was wrapping up that phone call with her mom, she told her mom that she had to go as a customer just walked in. About 10 minutes later, Michelle's brother Craig arrives to pick her up, and he had a weird feeling. He called his mom and was like, hey, there's something weird going on. All the lights are on, but I don't see anybody cleaning, getting ready to leave, anything like that. So Craig looks inside. There is no sign of Michelle or Angela. 20 minutes later, Clarksville police arrive at the Baskin Robbins. There's not a sign of a struggle, but the safe and the cash register drawers had been emptied. Police feared that the girls had been kidnapped during the robbery. As they always do, local media jumped on the story and police began a search of the area to find the missing girls. The next morning, about three miles away, a man is out for a walk in Dunbar State Park and he finds a body in the shallow part of the lake. Pat Pastiglione was getting ready for work that morning, and he heard the details on the news. He immediately felt that the cases may be connected. Angela Holmes was found in the shallow area of the lake, next to the bank, in a face-down position. Michelle's body is found in the woods less than 100 feet from Angela's. Both girls suffered multiple stab wounds and had their throats cut. Both women showed signs of overkill. Michelle had 14 stab wounds, and Angela was almost decapitated. Again, at this point, the motive of the crime seemed to match Captain D's and McDonald's murder, but something had changed. It wasn't just about the robbery anymore. It seemed as though the suspect was beginning to enjoy the kill. Do you get the same kind of vibe from that?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm sitting here thinking of, like, what is happening? First off, the Captain D's murder happened in the morning time. So why did he start in the morning? And it just seems that he's getting more aggressive as it comes. So the first one was in the morning. And he leaves them in the freezer. The second one happens in the evening time. And then he leaves them in the freezer, but also has a knife. So I feel like something has happened from the, I guess he has a knife for the third one, but something is happening along the way that's making him one more aggressive. And two, he's kind of changing up his attack mode. You know, he's getting, he's just getting more aggressive. And why wouldn't he just leave the girls' bodies at the Baskin Robbins? Why does he feel the need that he needs to take them away and dump their bodies somewhere?
0: I'm there with you because it seems like it goes Captain D's. Okay. You could, you know, you get what I think you got 20. If I go back through my notes, I think you got $2,300 there. McDonald's is like 7,500. Like, like, He's so
1: far I've calculated it from Captain D's from McDonald's and the $600 in the wallet. He has collected $10,400, which in 97, I mean, still now that's a lot of money, but like in 1997, that's, that's a decent amount of money.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure like adjusted for inflation, but I would imagine it's probably the equivalent of like maybe like 20, but, and you go from doing that and then you rob an ice cream shop. You know, and to me, it kind of felt like I get money from it, but I am more into the murder aspect. Because how much money are you really going to get from a, a Baskin Robbins in a small southern
1: town? Right now, it seems that he's doing this for the the thrill of killing. You know, maybe before it was like, let me see what I can get away with. And then maybe he just set out to rob the Captain D's in the morning when they were opening, which is kind of a silly time because I would think that there wouldn't be that much money lying around. But then I feel like, okay, he got away with that one and then he waited and he got away with the second one. And it's just, I think now he's like, okay, I can be a full-blown serial killer without getting caught.
0: You know, because if you're watching the news and you're like, the cops don't have any leads, they have no idea who I am. I'm sure like you begin to feel emboldened, you know, where you're just, I'm doing this and I'm not getting caught. So that drive, I want to escalate this. I'm not getting caught. I'm sure that pushed him in that direction. Now, at this point, This was no longer about the robbery. He's enjoying what he's doing. And the cops are like, we've still got nothing. The police in Clarksville, they set up a police tip line. And a woman reports seeing a red car at the Baskin Robbins near closing time. Now they get another tip from another witness who says they claim they saw a red car at the Dunbar State Park roughly 30 minutes later. So police set up roadblocks. So like, we're looking for a red car. They set up the roadblocks. They searched thousands of cars that they stopped. Still no leads. Now we're at seven people murdered, you know, families' lives shattered, and the police are still like, we've got nothing. So now it's June 1st, 1997. It's been six weeks since the Baskin-Robbins murders. Mitchell Roberts is a manager at a Nashville Shoney's restaurant, and he's at home with his family. His son was actually filming the family dog because they were actually putting him down the next day. At that point, there's a knock on the door. It is Paul Dennis Reed, He's a short order cook at the Shoney's until Mitch fired him, and he's standing there at the glass storm door. Now, at this point, we're going to talk a little bit more about Paul Dennis Reed. Reed was born in Richland Hills, Texas in November of 1957. After his parents' divorce, Reed and one of his sisters lived with his father and paternal grandmother. He sustained head trauma a number of times during his developmental years, including one occasion where he was actually hit on the side of the head with a brick. By the age of four or five, he was causing problems in the neighborhood and seriously misbehaving at home. He actually tried to set his grandmother's bed on fire while she was in it. And on another occasion, he beat his grandmother's dog to death with a baseball bat.
1: Okay. Can we stop right here for a second? Yes. This is all signs of a psychopath.
0: Oh, 110%.
1: First off, who's hitting a young child in the head with a brick?
0: I had watched some like YouTube videos and again, kind of doing my research. I found a couple of people who had mentioned this, but I had a really hard time like substantiating it until I went through the state of Tennessee versus Paul Reed in 2012, Um, because it looks like this kind of comes up a little bit later. So it, you know, I was like digging, 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 because I saw this and I was like, man, I wonder if it's true. And then I, I found it in that, that court record. And I'm right there with you, you know, Kara, my wife is a, as a social worker. So when I'm going through this, I'm like, you know, these are all signs that this person as a child needs some definite help. But I was wondering, you know, this is 1957 when he's born. And then by the age of four or five, he was causing problems in the home. So like, it sounds like he was like not even 10 years old when he's trying to do this. So one thing that I was really wondering about was like, did people know about these warning signs as commonly as we do because, you know, there's movies and TV shows where, you know, you see these warning signs are like that kid's a psycho, but was it as common back then? You know what I mean?
1: I just don't think people probably talked about it as much as we do now. You know, people tried to live, you know, the life where, Everything looks picture perfect, I feel like, in that time frame. And so, okay, yeah, my son, you know, might have done this and this and that, but he hasn't really harmed anybody. But I would say trying to set your grandmother's bed on fire while she's in it and beating her dog to death is something's not right. And mental institutions did exist at that time.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's another thing I was thinking, though, is like they existed, but it was like, you know, electroshock therapy and like dipping you in ice baths and stuff like that. So it's just like I think what what you brought up is a very important point is that it was a very like we need to be like leave it to beaver. We don't talk about these things, but it just seems like the mental health aspect has really evolved. I know, you know, being the father of a three year old and with what Kara does for a living, we have had that conversation where we're like, well, what would what would we do if you know, we start seeing signs that you know, things, because I think now you know so much about it now that as a a parent, you're like, yeah, I got to make sure I keep an eye on it. But yeah, the minute that, you know, your kid beats a dog to death, you're like, "Uh, okay, there's something like, you've got some weird thoughts in your head. After the incident with his grandmother, Reed returned to live with his mother and other sister when she learned that his father was planning on putting Reed up for adoption. However... He was kicked out at 16 for attempting to sexually assault his mother and his sister.
1: Wait, his mom was going to put him up for adoption?
0: No, his dad, because he was living with his dad and his paternal grandmother. And after that happened, the dad was going to put him up for adoption. And the At mom- what
1: age do we think this was at?
0: It doesn't specify, but it would have had to be he was somewhere
1: between 10 and 16.
0: Yes, because he was kicked out of his home at 16 for attempting to sexually assault his mother and his sister. So, you know, when you talk about warning signs again, you know, at this point, you're 16. You've tried to burn your grandmother in her bed. You've beat her dog to death. And then you tried to sexually assault the women in your family. Yeah, definitely like some huge red flags. He began his criminal career at an early age, stealing from clotheslines and mailboxes. In his adolescence, he spent time in juvenile facilities for things like check fraud, auto theft, and petty burglary. Now, in 1983, he attempted to rob a steakhouse in Houston, Texas. He was arrested and sentenced to a 20-year prison sentence. He was granted parole after serving only seven years. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Not that it hasn't been you know, interesting to this point, but this is the part that I think really stuck out to me. In 1997, he moved to Oklahoma to pursue a career as a country music singer. When he failed, he packed his bags and moved to Nashville to try again. He would perform at local talent shows while working at
1: the Shoney's. I got a question. Yes. Who moves to Oklahoma to become a country singer?
0: I think that's where Garth Brooks is from, right? Is Garth Brooks from Oklahoma? I'm not sure about
1: that. I'd have to find out. I, but, like, Nashville is like country music. Was Nashville not the country music capital of the United States in 1997?
0: I imagine that it was. Also, you know, going through this guy's history, I'm also, like, not surprised that he was like, I want to be a country singer. I'll go to Oklahoma. i lo- Oklahoma. There's lots of dogs in Oklahoma. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> Oh, man. Now, what I found really interesting, there's a reporter, his name was Kirk Loggins. Well, his name is Kirk Loggins. He's still with us, but he was a former reporter for the Tennessean. And he said he believes Reed to be incredibly self-deluded. And this is an actual quote from him. There's a lot of bad demo tapes that have been made, but this one was just incredible. How this guy could think he was a country singer is beyond me. So can we
1: find uh, copies of these demo tapes. So if I, exist?
0: if I can find them, I'm going to cut them in right here because they are in the, the investigation series that I watched. They are bad. Now I will say he did kind of look the part, but his voice is super yes. bad.
1: This is not Garth Brooks.
0: Yes. So we're going to go back to Mitch Roberts because again, Mitch Roberts, he's sitting at home. All of a sudden this guy's at his door. Mitch later described Paul as a model employee. He would come in early. He would stay late and do anything that was needed until one day in 1997, Paul became frustrated and threw a plate and actually hit a young lady at the restaurant. He was fired on the spot. Now, what's interesting about this is that he was fired on February 15th, 1997 is the day that he was fired. So him showing up the door, totally unexpected. And he's asking for his job back. Mitch and his family had an eerie feeling. Mitch told Reed, like, listen, I'll work with you, but it's not going to be tonight. It's going to have to be tomorrow. And then Mitch led him out to the front porch.
1: Can I just go back to dates real quick? and then just for the listeners to know that he was fired February 15th? Yep. February 15th. And it looks like when we go back... The Captain D's murders happened on the morning of February 16th.
0: Yeah. So, you know, if you're someone who watches Criminal Minds or if you are like a true crime fan like we are, that would be called the stressor. So Mitch leads him out to the front porch and is like, hey, man, I will work with you tomorrow. Like, you're at my house. It's late. You got to go. And at that point, Reed says he had proof that his employees were stealing from him and opened the trunk of his car. Inside the trunk of his car were pre-packaged steaks that Mitch recognized from being from the Shoney's restaurant. At this point, I had to stop because I'm like, you have proof that your employees are stealing from you. You open the trunk and you have all this guy. So you have proof that you're stealing from this guy because where did you get them if you didn't take them? You know what I mean? Right. At this point, Mitch notices... That Reed is driving a small red car and it all clicked together for him. Because remember the witnesses from the Baskin Robbins incident, they noticed, Hey, there was a red car parked outside. 30 minutes later, we saw a red car uh, parked at the the state park there. And all of this had been on the news. So in his head, Mitch was like, okay, this could be the guy. So he knew I have to get back into the house. As he was walking around the car, Reed drew a gun and pointed it at Mitch. He then pulled out a pair of handcuffs and instructed Mitch to put them on himself. Now, Mitch says this was either an act of courage or sheer stupidity. Mitch told Paul that he was walking back in the house and that he would call him tomorrow. And he turned his back on him and started to walk away. As he was walking back to the house, Mitch turned to look at Reed, and he now had a gun in one hand and a 10-inch knife in the other. Mitch told Paul... Listen, man, I don't want to hurt you. I don't think you want to hurt me. Put that up. And in the interview, being from Michigan, it's a real like Southern kind of thing to say because he's like, come on, man, put that up. Don't. You're not going to stab me today.
1: Yeah, just put that gun away. (laughs) Right.
0: So Mitch kept walking, and as he got to the front door, he turned and like Super Saiyan punched him in the chest. Reed flew backwards off the front porch. He ran the house, closed the storm door. He was holding it closed as Reed was trying to open it. Mitch began to yell to his wife, get the gun, hand me the gun. It's right there. Give me the gun. Now, this was a total bluff. Mitch did not have a gun, but he was like, if I say I have a gun, maybe I'll scare him off. And so it definitely worked. Reed took off, ran the other direction. And at that point, Mitch called the police and a deputy came out to file a report. Just about the time that the deputy was leaving, Mitch got a phone call and it was actually Paul Dennis Reed. And he was apologizing and asking if he could come back. Mitch was like, Okay, sure, he got the deputy back on the line, the deputy came back out, and essentially the the deputies just laid in wait for Reed to show up. 45 minutes later, Reed returned with another man in the car, and both were arrested on the spot. They knew they had their man, but now detectives had to tie Reed to the murders. So we're going to move into the interrogation. And I have to say as well, uh, we'll get into a little bit, but we've kind of noticed the mental illness trends. And I think in the interrogation, it takes it to a whole nother level because Reed was overly polite. Detective Pastiglione, he recalls Paul Dennis Reed being fixated on wanting the detectives to like him. Reed would say things like, if I'm the killer, or the murderer, you shouldn't want to be my friend either. He would also go on to say, let's say I am the killer. I don't just want you to hate me. So he was very concerned. Like, even if I did these things, like, I'm still not a bad guy, which is very weird. Right.
1: Be my friend. Right. Be my friend. I'm not I'm not a murderer. And even if I was, yeah. just be my friend. We could still it get a no beer. We
0: yeah. could, and I will say the way that this guy talks, and if you guys want to look up some YouTube videos, there's a, an interview with him where he was saying, I did not commit these nefarious homicides. And he just keeps calling them homicides instead <laughs> of homicides. <laughs> And I'm like, whoa, these nefarious homicides. It's very. And I
1: thought my uh, little accent was strong.
0: It is very Texas, Oklahoma. It's like just like a meld of all three of them. Yeah, it's real weird. Not to offend anybody who says homicides. I don't, yeah, you're not a serial killer and that's how you say it. I don't mean to offend you. But Pasticlione, he is on record as saying that Reed was one of the most bizarre individuals that he had ever come across. But police are going to need more than that feeling to tie Reed to the murders. They run his prints and they find that the fingerprint on Steve Hampton's video rental card is a match to Reed. In addition, Jose Gonzalez is able to make a positive identification. A search of Reed's home turns up a damning amount of evidence in the Baskin-Robbins murder. Blood from both Michelle Hayes and Angela Holmes are found on a pair of shoes, and further forensic evidence included microfibers matching samples taken from his car on the bodies of his final two victims. Reed's extravagant spending on dates after the murders was also used as evidence against him. So he was taking all his money and then just taking ladies out on dates.
1: I want to know, how is he getting these women on the dates? Was he singing his country song demos to them or what?
0: So this is the thing for like 90s guy. And I'll link up like a picture to him. He wasn't like a terrible looking dude. Like he worked out. He probably told lady like, yeah, I'm a, I'm here in Nashville trying to be a country singer. But the one thing I want to know is most of the money that he stole was in coins, right? We've already talked about how long it would take to roll. <laughs> like he's got this extravagant spending. But is he like, you know, taking ladies out and giving the waiters like rolls of coins? <laughs> like.
1: I got 50 cents for a tip here. Right.
0: Here you go. Oh, that's a $50 bottle of wine. He's just got rolls of quarters. He says, here you go. Yeah,
1: he's, I'm looking up Paul Dennis Reed right now, and he's not a half bad. He's definitely um, very muscular. Yes. I'd see where in the 90s he, he would be a charmer.
0: It's got the 90s mustache. But since you have the picture pulled up, do you notice anything about his eyes? Because to me, it looks like he has the eyes of a great white shark. It looks like there is just nothing behind them. I, I don't know if anybody's ever seen Jaws, but that when he's like that lifeless eyes, like a doll's eyes. Yeah, and
1: his, I could see that. And they're very, not sad, but they have this weird, I don't know, they just look, he looks rough. He looks rough in these pictures, you know?
0: Yeah, and it's weird because people have actually commented on this. He had a bunch of plastic surgery to improve his looks. So like, if you look at that picture of him, like you'll kind of see like where he's got like those weird lines on the side of his eyes. When police searched his home, they also found a lot of evidence that he had illusions of grandeur. So it's a lot of pictures of him, like posing in front of these expensive cars and stuff like that. But they have literally commented being like, he got all this plastic surgery. He could not fix his eyes because he's just got these, like, like these shark eyes.
1: Yeah, and they're just very droopy. They just, they look empty.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's very strange. And when they found out that he had been fired on February 15th, which again was the day before the Captain D's murder, that's when they were you know able to put everything together. Now, the other thing that they learned was that when he was arrested in Houston for the robbery of the steakhouse, there was witnesses. So they believe that that's where he learned listen, if I'm going to rob this place, I'm not leaving any witnesses. We flash forward to May of 2000, and now the trial is underway. So in separate trials, Reed was found guilty of all seven murders and sentenced to die by lethal injection. Even though Reed was convicted and sentenced to death, it brought little closure to the family. Michelle May's mother, Connie Black, has said, you, know, you never really have closure. Your child will always be gone on this earth. We'll never see her again here. We have to get used to that. We have to know that. And, you know, again, as a parent, that was one of those things that's like, even if heaven forbid anything happened to someone in my family like that, I can imagine that even if that person is sentenced, while you're, you know, probably happy that it happened, it doesn't bring any real closure. You know what I mean? That's got to be a, a hard thing.
1: Right. I mean, you'll never get closure when your loved one was murdered, but at least they've caught them. There's so many cold case files in the United States and probably all over the world that people have no sense of closure, no idea what happened to their loved one.
0: I have a feeling that as we go through and we, you know, we do more episodes for the podcast, I have a feeling that's probably what we're gonna see is either that, you know, hey, I'm happy that they caught him or like can somebody please catch this guy because what one person has it may not be necessarily enough for them, you know, there's another person that's just begging for that. It's interesting how crimes like these can leave people feeling. Now, after the trial, Reed's family argued that he was mentally incompetent to stand trial. Following his conviction, they argued that he was not able to make sound legal decisions. He displayed erratic decision-making, choosing to appeal some of the verdicts, but not others. He also expressed his desire to die a sentence after fighting to avoid that fate in his earlier defense. He also displayed signs of paranoia, calling his defense team actors and claiming that he was part of a government-run mind control project.
1: So why in 2000 does the family decide to say that he is mentally incompetent when there were signs of him being mentally incompetent at the age of four?
0: Well, what's very interesting is that these primarily came from one of his sisters. So what I'm wondering is as an adult and as she's like gone through her life, because I'm sure that she had a lot of trauma that she had to work out. So I'm wondering if, you know, kind of looking back, because that, and that's the thing, too, when you're researching something like this, like you get little snippets, but didn't say who hit him in the head with the brick. You don't know. Was it grandma was it dad doesn't really go into that. And that's another really hard thing, too, is that I'm sure is like even if your family member does something terrible, it's.
1: You're still your
0: family member. Yeah. You're probably still like, I love this. I love this person regardless, you know? And I think it brings in the idea that people can be more than one thing. Right. You may be my brother and we've fixed our relationship or whatever. And, you know, you're good to me. But then at the same time, you're doing like these heinous things. You know, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird dynamic. That was really interesting to me too, that he was like claiming that he was part of a government run mind control project, like.
1: Oh, it's good. good luck to you, buddy.
0: yeah through appeals, Reed avoided death by lethal injection. In 2013, Reed was actually hospitalized at Nashville General Hospital of Meharry. and on November 1st, Reed died from complications due to pneumonia, heart failure, and upper respiratory issue. He had been in the hospital for about two weeks. That's it. They caught him you know and to me, and I'm wondering if we're gonna see this a lot too, uh, cause I believe it's a, a similar thing, uh, with the case that you're doing next week, not to spoil anything, but it's like, it feels like it's almost like karma where it's like, okay, you're appealing, you're appealing, you know, you didn't die by lethal injection, but the universe still found some way to be like, karma. Yeah. Got to get you out of here. So, yeah. So what do you think of this story?
1: So, you know, it goes all back to this childhood, you know, I can't get past that. If people had, I feel like just now in general, talking about mental health, where we are these days, you know, we talk more openly about mental health and getting people helped and admitting them to psychiatric facilities and trying to get these behaviors that they may be under control. But I just wonder sometimes if that inside the mind of someone who is a true psychopath, you can see the aggression as he commits these murders and how they get more heinous as he goes on. And he does it in such a short period of time, but you, then you wonder what is he doing in the weeks that he's not murdering and committing these crimes? Like, I don't think that he's just hiding out afraid that he's going to get caught. Or of course he wouldn't have committed the other two crimes. So you just wonder like, what is he doing in his life? What does he, what does he think?
0: It's interesting to think like he's doing these terrible things, but then like,
1: is he just recording his demos and dates and just living a normal life in the five weeks? And maybe he's maybe he has some sort of mania or some split personality disorder. You know, it doesn't it'd be interested to see what his like psychological evaluations would be after he was arrested and in prison to kind of determine like, okay, like on a scale of one to ten, how much of a psychopath are you? But I just wonder if he was just like in these areas of mania when he would go and kill all these people it's almost like he was living like he wanted to live a different lifestyle than he was living like you know he said he would take pictures in front of these expensive cars he would take women on these dates so like does he have to kill to get the money like to be able to Be this guy who's like this up and coming or trying to be an up and coming country star and he has to wine and dine these people and it's all fraud. I mean, I don't know. There could be a lot of things that could be behind all of this. but
0: I think that's a really good point, too, because it's like, are you committing these murders and stealing this money because you believe that it's, you know, you need this money to get where you because, you know, being a musician, I can tell you recording studio time is not cheap especially in Nashville, right. like if you're trying to do something legit. So like, are you doing this because you're trying to get money to pursue what you think you're meant to do or is what you think you're meant to do not working out? And so as an excuse, you have to be like, you know, I have to get money. So I'm in, I'm going to commit these robberies. But then the act of the murder is like, I'm being punished. So you're going to be punished now. Right. I don't know. It's it's very interesting to think about. One of your questions I was reading, we didn't really get into a lot, but he did have like several psych evaluations that were done and everybody was like, he's competent. He's, he's had some mental health issues in the past, but at this point, you know, it seems like he's competent. He's fully aware of, of what he's doing.
1: But there's definitely underlying things because why does a grown man go get plastic surgery in the early 90s? They don't.
0: Plastic surgery now doesn't look like if you see somebody with plastic surgery now, you're like, oh, you got plastic surgery where in the
1: 90s it was. That's not a comment that even women weren't really doing all the plastic surgery. I mean, the very wealthy probably were. But I would say that a regular guy in Nashville probably wasn't your first guy showing up at the plastic surgeon's office.
0: Yeah. It's just interesting to think like, do you rob a restaurant and kill you know three people and then. Two nights later, you're at the honky tonk on Broadway because, you know, living in that area, if you walk down Broadway, there's a hundred different bars and a hundred different people playing. Like if you like live music, it's the, it's the place to be and i guess maybe because i'm not a psychopath it's hard to compartmentalize oh i did this terrible thing and now i'm going to go out and you know play a few shows and
1: yeah it's almost like how how do you how do you disconnect from the guilt like even if even when you were a kid think of if you did something bad and you were a kid and you're like oh my mom's going to find out my mom's going to find out what's going to happen if they find out like how do these people just go and commit these heinous crimes and then live a normal life. That's just what blows my mind. And that's what just makes it very interesting to me that like, it's like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just what I did on my Friday night. Um.
0: It's funny. I have a very distinct memory. I stayed the night at, I must've been like eight or nine. And I stayed the night at my friend Sean's house and uh, his dad had Playboy magazines. So you know I'm like nine years old. And he's like, look at this. And so my mom came and picked me up the next day. I got in the car and I guess I was being quiet. And she was like, so, like, what'd you guys do? Did you have fun? And the only thing I said was, I saw boobies in a magazine. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I just immediately apologized. Like, I just, I had so much guilt that I was, you know, I was like, I did something wrong. I have to tell you. So, okay.
1: So then I guess it's safe to say that you're not a psychopath serial killer.
0: Not a psychopath one, at least. I'm just, okay. No, I'm just kidding. This is where we get into, I'm very excited about this because I think, you know, we may differ a little bit. And this is where, if you're listening to the show, um, definitely hit us up on social media. We'll talk about where in just a minute, but want to kind of get our overall feelings and want to hear your feedback. And this is going to be the the deadbolt scale. So with the, the deadbolt scale, essentially is a scale from one to 10. After hearing this story, how likely would you be as you were laying in bed tonight to get up and check the locks. How did this one sit with you? Did it rattle you to the core? Or is it, hey, I'm just going to bed. I'm not carrying it with me. So I'm going to start with you, Olivia, before I give give mine. But on a scale of one to 10, after covering this story, where do you fall on that deadbolt test?
1: Okay. So I'm going to place myself in the nineties and I'm going to place myself in 2022 and current time. So if I, in 1997, I was seven years old. So I can't really, you know, say that this would scare. It would, wouldn't scare me too much because I wouldn't know really about what's happening. But I can relate myself to a situation um, from my hometown where a lady was murdered at the local Taco Bell, literally right outside my neighborhood, and she was locked in a cooler and basically brutally murdered. And I think the case is still a cold, a cold file. Maybe we'll do this on our episode. But I remember when that happened. I was terrified that there was a murderer literally right close to our house. So back in my child, 1997 mine, I would say that it would probably be about a nine for me. You know, (laughs) you can't go to your local Captain D's, McDonald's, you know, and all that is right there from where I grew up. And then having something similar happen, like literally right in my backyard, I would say a nine. Now, if I was in current time, I would say... This one just seems like a regular strike of a serial killer. So I'm going to put it about at a five. Definitely going to make sure the doors are locked. If I was in Mitch's family, I would definitely lock them twice or three times, you know, because he was coming after him. Um, So I put that one right there in the middle. It's definitely acts of heinous crime. And you can definitely tell that as he committed more crimes, they got worse and he got more aggressive. And so I would definitely say that he is very much a serial killer sociopath. So I put it right at a five. I would definitely go check the locks. I'm probably not going to have too many uncomfortable moments going to sleep thinking about uh, Paul Dennis Reed, but definitely puts a little chill down your spine.
0: And I have to say our thought process was very similar. First of all, just so I get this out of the way, there could be a mass murder at my local Taco Bell. That is not stopping me from getting my cheesy gordita crunch. I would walk over bodies. (laughs) In an active crime
1: scene. So I'm a huge Taco Bell fan. Anybody who probably knows me or knows anything about my life knows that I love Taco Bell. Like it is my guilty pleasure. Could eat it three, four times a week if it was healthy. And so this was in the era of when they had the Choco Tacos. Oh my They're they coming back. So oh, that's great news because that was in the time of the Choco Taco. So you couldn't go get your dessert Choco Taco because one, the Taco Bell was closed for a long time. And it actually reopened in that same location. Probably, I couldn't tell you the time frame, but probably several months. But there was always like, oh, you're eating at Taco Bell? I bet you there's whatever in the meat. Like, why are you eating at that Taco Bell? And in my mind, I'm like, it's clean. It's fine. I'm going to get my Choco Taco, my bean burrito and move on with my life. But it wasn't up until probably in the last five to six years that the Taco Bell is in a different location. Like it's in a completely different building, but it reopened and we continue to eat there after this happened.
0: Oh yeah. There's no shame in my Taco Bell game. They had the chili cheese burrito back in the day. Oh my God. It was so good. (laughs) That's what I could eat like six of them like in a day, but that's because (laughs) I'm unhealthy and I need to take better care of myself. Um, all right,
1: John. So what is your take on checking the lock?
0: I'm actually kind of in line with your thought process. So for me in 2022, because I will tell you, I, I was up until like 1.30 in the morning doing my research, taking notes, I was reading court documents, all that stuff. And then at 1.30, I went to sleep like a baby. I didn't carry any of it with me. In 2022, I think I would give it a four because I don't work in a fast food restaurant, but what really hit me was the idea of parents being terrified of like sending their teenagers to go work and having a kid. I think that hit me a little bit harder than it would if, you know, this was, you know, four years ago when I didn't have one.
1: Yeah. Put yourself in your shoes and Millie's 16 going to work at McDonald's.
0: Right. And when she gets that age, I think this is something that will come back to me at that point to, you know, it doesn't really hit me now, but you know, when she's 15, 16, she's got her car, she's driving all the worries that come in your head. I feel like this is going to be the one I was like, you know, about Paul Dennis Reed, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) this (laughs) <laughs> but um, going back to when I was you know, 16, I worked in a broasted chicken restaurant. I worked at Fazoli's. I, I worked in a lot of, of restaurants. So if I would have heard about this when I was like 16, 17, because I always closed, I would have been terrified. I think it would have been a 10 for me at that point.
1: But Oh, 100%. You could be the next victim waiting to be attacked by Paul Dennis Reed and be the next fast food restaurant killer.
0: Right. For like $12 and quarters.
1: Thanks to the manager, Mitch, at the Shoney's for putting his uh, detective hat on and figuring out that Mr. Reed is not a nice man.
0: No. And for the people listening, that's where we stand on the deadbolt test. However, we would love to hear from you. Did this story shake you a little bit? Are you going to sleep like a baby? You know, not going to have any thoughts about it? You can let us know. We are on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We are on Twitter at Check the Locks. We have a Facebook group that you can join. We actually have 50 members. We have 50 members in one day. I was like, all right, hell
1: yeah. We're getting getting on up there. (laughs) The
0: little (laughs) podcast that could. Also, this episode is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can get it on Google Podcasts, Stitcher. I'm sure it's on AM radio somewhere. Please leave us a five-star review. Let us know what you think of the show. I think what would be fun, Olivia, and I wanted to kind of run this by you, what if every week we pick a five-star review, we read it on the show, and then we got a bunch of stickers coming we could even, you know, send out some stickers, do some giveaways, things like that. How do you feel?
1: Oh, I love giveaways. I love winning things cuz I never win. So yeah, like our pages, give us some feedback, let us know what you like about our podcast, what you think we could do better, and just leave us a review. Tell us tell us you enjoyed our stories and uh, we'll send you some loot.
0: Awesome. That's episode number one. We did it. I'm super excited. Episode number two. Check it out. And again, thank you so much for listening to us, going through the story. Super, super fun. Super happy to be doing this. And don't forget to check your locks.
1: Have a good night, everybody.